Awesome. Well, good morning, Grace Church. It's good to see you guys. Uh, real quick question. How many of you stayed up last night to watch the game? Wow. Yeah. Awesome. And you guys made it to church at 9.15. So Jesus just loves you more than other people. So we're glad about that. And uh, man, go Tribe. So exciting. Hopefully they finish it tonight, but if they don't, it'd be fine, it'd be fine to see them win at home too. That'd be all right. So really, really exciting. But hey, we're really excited that you're able to come out this morning as we finish. We're actually finishing a series today uh, that we have been calling Citizen. Of course, this series has really been kind of a long, extended conversation about this touchy but very relevant topic of God and politics. And, uh, and so we've been talking about this for the past four weeks and kind of journeying through this conversation together. And I will just say, um, kind of like Clark mentioned just a moment ago, if you are a guest with us this morning, hey, thanks so much for being here. We count it an absolute privilege uh, that you would carve out time and spend that with us here on Sunday morning. But I do want to let you know that if you are a guest, you are sort of catching us at the tail end of a conversation. So what we've been saying about this series is we've been saying that this series is really one long conversation that takes place over the course of four weeks. And so if you missed the past three weeks of this series, I would just invite you, you can go back and you can listen to the previous parts of this conversation. Um, If you go to our website, there should be some information in your programs there about how to get to our website. You can watch that. You can listen to that. Uh, You can also subscribe to our podcast, listen to it that way if you want to. And again, all that is for free. But I would just say that if you want to catch up on the rest of the conversation, you can do that. But I will say, um, the past few weeks going through this series, uh, as you can probably imagine, because this is such a lively topic, it has been really, really fascinating to see some of the conversations that have resulted uh, from this series. And so myself and our staff, the conversations that we've had with many of you in the lobby, in the cafe, uh, many conversations that we've even had out in the community with different people, has been really fascinating. And of course, some of that conversation has been really healthy. Some of it's been really lively, as you can imagine. And probably, to me, one of the greatest things I think that's come out of the series is just that so many of you are processing through in a very fresh way what the Bible teaches about God and politics. And one of the things I've been really amazed with is the questions that have been generated. Some amazing questions and considerations from so many of you um, as it relates to what we've been talking about. And so because of that, because there's so many questions and there's so many more considerations than we can do justice to in a four-part series, uh, we decided to kind of create a resource that we want to make available to you uh, that we thought would be helpful. So I'm going to throw a number up on the screen here uh, in just a second, yeah, right now. Yeah, okay, so there's the number I want to throw up. And we just want to, uh, to let you know that if you have any questions or comments or anything as it relates to this series, this conversation about God and politics, you can text us at this number. And, uh, and what we want to do is we're going to create a resource this week. Where we're going to have a roundtable conversation uh, with some of the pastors on our team and really just try to add considerations to those questions and to those comments. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And then we're going to record that, and we're going to put that roundtable conversation up on our website and make that available for you if you want to check that out. This number that we put up on the screen, I'm going to keep it at the bottom of the screen for the duration of the message. And so if at any point you have a, conver- you, you have a question or a comment, you can just pop out your phone and you can just text us. And uh, we'll make sure that we get that and we address that. Okay, so we just said, man, this is such an expansive conversation. There's just so much. We know that four weeks, it's not going to be able to entail everything that kind of goes with this topic. And so we want to create an outlet for questions and comments and those things. Okay, so that's that. Now today what I want to do as we complete the series is I want to pick up where we left off last week. So again, if you were with us last week, this will be a continuation of our conversation. If you are just jumping in, you might want to check out last week as well. Uh, But we're going to pick up where we left off, and I want to invite you to grab your Bibles with me. And let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13. Because if you've got your Bibles, let's go once again. 
to Romans chapter 13. And some of you might remember Romans 13 is where we left off last week. And so we're going to go ahead and flip there again. And uh, let me say, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's not a problem. We actually have some Bibles for you. And so in those chairs that are underneath you or in front of you, you should see a black Bible and uh, on page 790. So where you're going to find Romans 13. And then let me just say, like we say every week, if you are a guest and you don't have a Bible, uh, just go ahead and take one of ours and make that a gift from us to you. We think it's important that you have a Bible. So Romans 13. Now, as you're finding Romans 13... Uh, Let me just, again, give just kind of a quick uh, recap of where we've been. So last week, we started looking at Romans 13. And the reason we started looking at Romans 13 is because we said that Romans chapter 13 is really the most detailed and most comprehensive chapter in the Bible as it relates to the question of how does a person of faith interact with politics and governing authorities? That's That's the topic of Romans 13. We said Romans 13 is probably the most comprehensive um, chapter in the whole Bible, most detailed chapter in the whole Bible on this topic matter. So the question again is, how does a person of faith, how does a person who follows Jesus, and of course we know not everyone in this room follows Jesus, but the question is, how does a person who follows Jesus interact with politics, and how do they interact with the government? And namely, what we said last week, as we said, Romans 13 introduces us to four ways, four ways that a person of faith interacts with political structures and governing authorities, four ways. So last week, you might remember, we looked at two of those, and today we said we're going to finish by looking at the last two, kind of pick up where we left off. But again, just to recap, here was the first two. The first way, we said that a person of faith interacts with political authorities and governmental structures, uh, first and foremost, last week we said was providentially. Uh, We said according to Romans chapter 13, The Apostle Paul teaches us that a person of faith is to interact with the political structure and the governing authorities that we have as providentially. Uh, Providentially. Now, what do we mean by that? What we said was this. We said that um, contrary to popular belief, the Apostle Paul teaches us that politics are not from the devil. Uh, That political structures, governmental authorities, those type of things are not intrinsically and essentially evil or corrupt. Uh, that they're not a necessary evil, but the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 13 that all governing structures and political systems that are put over top of us have been appointed and have been established by God. So we talked about that last week, and we talked about how the very first time the idea of politics shows up in the Bible is before evil and is before sin even enters the world in Genesis chapter 1. And so because of that, we said for those of us who follow Jesus, that means that we, we cannot and we should not simply have a dismissive attitude as it relates to the political matters, that we have to recognize that, that uh, politics and government has been given to us by God providentially. That doesn't mean that it's perfect, it's flawed, it's been tainted by sin, but that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we talked about that a little bit last week. We said that's the first way that a person of faith interacts with politics. The second way we said was this. We said that because God has provided political structures and governing authorities, the second way that a person of faith interacts with politics is submissively. Uh, That those of us who follow Jesus are to interact with our governing authorities in a submissive manner. And yeah, man, last week we talked about again. We said that, that, that word, submit, tends to be one that is a super, uh, a super negative term in our culture. Oftentimes met with resistance. We don't like that word. Uh, but yet, biblically, it's an incredibly important concept. And so last week, we, we tried to really talk about that. We said, what does it mean to submit to your governing authorities? And, and what does that look like? And what if your governing authorities are corrupt? What if your governing authorities are unethical? 
Uh, what if they're asking you to do things that, that, that go against, that cut against the grain of what you believe? And do you always submit? Are there ever times that you don't submit? And so we just took some time last week, and we just try to deal with that part of the conversation as well. And so again, if you want to check that out, you can go back and listen to that. But two ways we said that a person of faith interacts with politics, we said providentially, submissively. And now this week, we want to look at the last two. Here's the third one. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The third way that a person of faith, that a Christian is to interact with the governing authorities and the political structures that God provides is respectfully. All right, respectfully. I think this one's incredibly important. A person of faith is to interact with the political structure and the governing authorities that God has provided for us with respect, respectfully. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 6. So we'll pick up where we left off. Verse 6, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, then pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. All right, let's just pause there for a second. So, so again, the Apostle Paul now says, this is why we pay taxes. Now, uh, what he's referring to when he says this is also why, uh, he's referring back to what he's already said. And what has he already said? He says that government has been provided by God, and therefore we are to act submissively to that government that God has given us. He says it's for that reason, the Apostle Paul says, that those of us who follow Jesus are to give to the government, we're to give to the political system that God has provided, what we owe them. Give them what you owe them. And what is it that we owe them, Paul? Well, you notice he kind of gives us a list here. And I want you to notice some of the things that he mentions that we owe to our government, to our authorities. He says, uh, notice he begins, he says, if it's taxes, then taxes. If it's revenue, then revenue. So you notice the Apostle Paul starts off. He says, you give your governing authorities what you owe them. He's like, taxes, revenue, what he's referring to there, of course, by the way, he's referring to uh, monetary legal obligations uh, that we have that we've given to by our governing authorities course this thought process right here uh, some of you uh, this might you might remember this actually um, is reminiscent of a passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago in Mark chapter 12 when uh, the disciples came to Jesus when two groups of people came to Jesus they said Jesus should we pay our taxes to Caesar or not and you guys remember what Jesus said he said give to Caesar what you owe him so pay your taxes and give to God what you owe him so the apostle Paul says the same thing here What is it that we owe the governing authorities? He says, well, you owe them your outward monetary acts of submission. Pay your taxes, give your revenues, right? The the legal obligations that that, that have been placed on you by your governing authorities, if they don't directly violate or contradict scripture, he says, I want you to do those things. But then I want you to notice the Apostle Paul actually adds two things to this list. And do you notice the two things he mentions? Check this out. He says, respect and honor. What is it that we owe our governing authorities, Paul? He says, well, taxes and revenues and whatever legal, monetary legal obligations that you, that you are obligated to. He says, but also respect and honor. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because I want you to, do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying here? See, what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. He's saying that not only are we t- required to give out of legal obligation, but he also tells us that we're to give with, with a certain type of attitude and a certain type of heart condition, Right? He doesn't just talk about the outward expression of submission, but he, already talk, he also talks about the inward attitude in which those acts are to be practiced. So in other words, let me put it, put it another way. Basically what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he's saying what I think many of us already know. He's saying it's not just enough to do the right thing. You also have to do it in the right way. It's because the Apostle Paul understands it is possible to do the right thing 
but to do it in the wrong way. True or false? Yeah, true. It is totally possible to do the right thing in the wrong way. Here's an example. Let's say that my wife came to me and she said, uh, hey, babe, would you be willing to help me hang up a picture in the living room? So get out your tools, get out the ladder, and would you come help me hang up a picture? And let's say that my attitude, that I, I responded to her, and I just said, fine, if I have to. I guess I'll get all my stuff out, and I guess, and this may or may not be a true story, by the way. And I'm like, I guess I'll get all my stuff out, and I guess, and then the whole time I'm hanging up the picture, I'm like bickering, and I'm complaining. It's just, I can't believe I'm doing this, you know, blah, blah. And now, now let me ask you a question. Am I doing the right thing? Um, yeah, the outward behavior is the right behavior. I am serving my wife, like the Bible says I ought to. I'm doing the right thing. Am I doing it in the right way? No. No, I'm not doing it in the right way. And some might argue that if I do the right thing in the wrong way, I'm doing what? Doing the wrong thing. I'm doing the wrong thing. And so the Apostle Paul comes in here and he says, as it relates to our governing authorities, if for those of us who follow Jesus, it's not enough that you just do the right thing. It's not enough that you just pay your taxes and you pay your revenues and you fulfill your legal obligations. He says you also have to do it in the right way. And what's the right way? With respect and with honor. There's a certain climate of the heart that's supposed to accompany this. I was reminded as I was studying for this this past week, I was reminded, for some reason, the story came to my mind. And I don't remember when this happened. It was a while ago. Some of you might remember it because it made national headlines. Uh, but there was a story of a Texas man who got a speeding ticket. And so he was, some of you guys might remember this, he was in a residential neighborhood, and he was going about 10 miles over. And so a cop pulled him over, gave him a ticket. Well, I guess for whatever reason, he didn't think he deserved a ticket. And so he tried to contest it, went to court, contested it, lost and so now his $79 ticket became a $215 charge with court costs and all that. So he was infuriated about this and decided that he wanted to try to make a point. So what he did is he went to the bank, he got $215, and he cashed it all out in pennies. So over 20,000 pennies. He went home, he proceeded to break open every penny container and empty these out, all 20,000-plus pennies, into two five-gallon buckets. And then he took the time to paint in and to stencil the words on the bucket, extortion payment. And then he went into the court, to the, to the clerk's office. He took both of these buckets and he proceeded to dump them out onto uh, the, the, uh, the counter. Here's actually a picture that he, he got a video of it, of course, and it went viral on YouTube. You can watch it if you want to. And he just dumped these things out onto, onto the, the, uh, the desk and then just said to the lady, just send me a receipt. And he walked out. Now, let me ask you a question. Did he do the right thing? Yeah, he paid his fine, right? He did the right thing. He paid his ticket. Did he do it in the right way? That's the question. Did he do it in the right way? And some of you are like, yeah, he did, right? <laughs> I, 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 that's up for debate. But I, I, all I'm saying is, okay, so like admittedly, it's pretty funny. It is funny. But not, not unless you're the person that's counting the pennies, then it's not funny at all. But listen, for those of us who follow Jesus, the point I'm trying to make is that it's not enough that we just do the right thing, that we fulfill our legal obligation, there's a certain climate and attitude of our heart that is to accompany that. And so we do these things. I, I think about Peter. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the, for the reason, the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Do the right thing. Do it in the right way. It's not enough just to have Christian beliefs. You also have to have Christian behaviors. And these things need to accompany each other. And so if you do the right thing in the wrong way, it then becomes the wrong thing. And so do it in the right way is what he says. And by the way, this idea of respect and honor that accompanies governmental authorities is not something that's isolated to Romans chapter 13. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. In fact, let me just give you one other example. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in uh, Hebrews chapter 13. 
He says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Look at this. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. You see what he says there? He says, do, do this in such a way that their job's not gonna be a burden. I love how he says this. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, have confidence in your leaders. Have confidence, a really fascinating term. Uh, the word confidence there literally means to bring oneself over to kind feelings. Bring oneself over to kind feelings. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, listen, give them the benefit of the doubt. Start from a place of grace. You guys, I think that this verse is very fitting for the cultural climate that we find ourselves in today, right? Isn't it true that today, that by and large, the, the attitude that tends to, to accompany uh, people in positions of authority for, for most people in our society is one that we start from a place of cynicism, we start from a place of suspicion, we start from a pr- place of, of having a critical spirit towards those people, and, and, and here the Apostle Paul says, no, don't start there. Don't start from that place. Start with a place of confidence. Start with a place in which you give yourself over to kind feelings. He says, and if you do this, man, I love how he says this. He's like, this is going to be better for you, and it's going to be better for them. Don't make it a burden for them to do their job. Now, what the Apostle Paul is not saying there, by the way, he's not saying, um, hey, you know, just be mindless and uh, just, you know, just follow people and trust them without any discernment. or anything. It's not what he's saying. He's just talking about the climate of our hearts the attitude in which we do things. I think any of you, uh, any of us in this room who have kids probably understand this principle pretty well, right? I, I could just tell you at my house, we have found that the attitude that my kids have is, is going to have a direct effect on how easy it is for me to parent them, and it's going to have a direct effect on how easy it is for them to be my child, right? Their attitude is going to affect that. So this past week, for example, um, you know, the, the times that my kids have a good attitude, they have a healthy attitude, they're responsive, all of those things, man, things go well. I want to show them grace. I want to love them. I want to parent them. It makes my job easier. But then there's other times. There's other times when their attitude is just off. And so uh, this past week, my, my five-year-old, he tends to be the one that we, we have a lot of attitude issues with. And so this week we were fighting again over, uh, over dinner and so he has this thing where he takes about uh, 25 years to eat his dinner. And so we, we're constantly, buddy, you got to eat your food. Stop talking. Eat your food. Don't play, with your, don't play with it. Eat your food. Don't talk to your brother. You know, just eat your food. We've gotten to a place where we set a timer for him. And the timer goes off. You're done. That's it. And so he just, he just takes forever to eat his food. So this week I was like, buddy, I said, eat your chicken. You eat your chicken. And he goes, I don't want to eat my chicken. Just comes right back. I don't want to eat my chicken. And I said, well, I'm not asking you this. I, you need to eat your chicken, buddy. And, and he said to me, this is what he said. He goes, he goes, why do I need to eat my chicken? And I was like, well, uh, first, because I said so. So that's a thing. I was like, and then the other reason is because chicken has protein in it and it has nutritional value and it'd be good for you to, to eat that and to, you know, you can't just live on snacks. And this is what he said to me. I said, chicken has protein in it. And he looked at me and he goes, how do you know? <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? You're five years old, right? I gave you life, boy, right? And it just, there's something in you that just, man, rubs up against it. And that's all, that, that's all that the writer of Hebrews is trying to point out. He's like, look, man, don't make the, the job of your leaders unnecessarily burdensome. What, what benefit is that to you? And what benefit is that uh, to them? So that's kind of what he's talking about. I think this is why uh, the writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul, goes on in verse 8 to say this. Look at verse 8. 
He says, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. Forever, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandment there might be is summed up in this one commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, here's something fascinating. I want you to notice Romans 13 is all about government. It's all about politics. And so uh, Paul is talking about governing authorities and the attitudes that we're to have. And then all of a sudden in verse 8, do you notice the apostle Paul starts talking about love? He just starts talking about love. He's like, we ought to owe nothing to anyone else but love. And for you and I as a reader, we're probably looking at that and we're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about politics. Why do we all of a sudden switch to the topic of love? What does love have to do with politics, Paul? Right? What has love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Right? As the great 20th century philosopher Tina Turner once said. Right? What's love have anything to do with it? Well, I think the reason the Apostle Paul breaks into this little passage about love is actually because the Apostle Paul understands something very well about the human heart as it relates to politics. See, I think the Apostle Paul understands that often the place that love is the most lacking is as it relates to political matters and governmental matters. And so he says, listen, you need to owe nothing to anyone except for love. So I want you to follow his logic. This is pretty awesome. In verse 6 and 7 that we just looked at, the Apostle Paul said, give the government what you owe them. What do you owe them? He says, taxes, revenue, uh, respect, and honor. And then he says this. He says, so, so, so give them what you owe them. And then he says, owe nothing to anyone except for one thing. There's one thing that you will always owe. And I love the way he says it. Look how he says it here. Except the continuing debt to love one another. Now, this is pretty powerful because what Paul is saying is this. You can pay your taxes and you can be done and owe nothing. You can pay your revenue to its fullness and you can be done. You can give enough honor and you can give enough respect. But he says there is, you cannot fulfill the debt of love. So in other words, when have you loved enough? Never. When do you get to a place when you say, you know what, I've loved that person enough? Never. He says this is the ongoing continual debt that we owe to our fellow man. And you guys, I think for whatever reason, I don't know why this is the case, but for those of us who follow Jesus and call ourselves Christians, I don't know why it is that the one place we feel like the great commandment does not apply is in politics. We're like, yeah, I need to love my neighbor. Yeah, I need to love my, my, my family. Yeah, I need to love these people. But we're talking about politics now. I don't need to love those people. I don't need to love them. I can hate them. I can lambast them. I can post vicious and slanderous things about them on Facebook because they're, they're not real people anyway. And I'm like, no, I think the Apostle Paul understands the human heart. He says, no, we owe them love. This is what we owe to the leaders that God has provided for us. And so what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, let me just draw a couple applications before we move on to the last one. So, so for those of us who follow Jesus, what does that mean for us to act respectfully to the governing authorities that God has provided to us? And so I want to give you a couple applications for those of us who follow Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I know some of you aren't followers of Jesus, maybe you're still investigating that, you can take these as suggestions. I still think they're good suggestions. But for those of us who follow Jesus, I would say these are imperative. These are necessary in light of what the Bible says. So here, here's the first application I would say. I'd say this. If you're a follower of Jesus, we must resist having a cynical attitude, right? We got to resist. We got to fight against tooth and nail the proclivity that all of us have in this season towards an attitude of cynicism, critical, cantankerous, quarrelsome, defiant, unnecessarily insubordinate spirits, 
We've got to fight against that stuff. Because I said this last week, I think it's worth saying again. It is easy and it is lazy to be cynical. It is easy. It's so easy. And it's, la- and it's lazy to be cynical. And I'll be the first one to confess to you that I have done a terrible job in this department. As it, as it relates to being respectful and showing honor and loving, I've done, I've done an awful job during this election. At that. I've been so convicted even just reading this passage, right? It's easy and it's lazy for us to be in a place where we're cynical. I was just reading a statistic this week, and um, it had mentioned uh, that, uh, that of registered Americans that were surveyed, 60% had an unfavorable view of, of Clinton, and 69% had an unfavorable, unfavorable view of Trump, making the two of these people the most unpopular presidential candidates in the history of the United States of America. And so it's easy to be, it's easy to be cynical right now, isn't it? I mean, I think by and large, most Americans look at the options we have, and we don't like it. It's not great. And so how easy it is for us to go to a place of cynicism. But listen, I think that those of us who follow Jesus, we ought to pave the way in showing respect to our authorities and to the leaders. That we ought to pave the way at that. We ought to be the best at that. Now, now what I'm saying, I'm not saying that that means that we, we can't disagree at times and that we can't at sometimes be outraged. I don't think that means that we can't sometimes be disgusted or that we can't, we can't uh, just, you know, fundamentally disagree. But what I mean is that there is a way in which we do those things. And the way in which we do those things is with gentle, gentle respect and honor, with love in our hearts, not, with, not, not, not in a vicious, vindictive way. We've got to do the right things in the right way. It's not enough just to have Christian beliefs. We also have to have, to have Christian behavior that accompanies that. The Bible tells us that if you're a follower of Jesus, that we fight in a different way. We fight in a different way than the world fights. Let me show you a great passage on this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor, supreme authority, to governors who are sent to him to punish those who do wrong, commend those who do right. Now look at this. For it is God's will, this is what God wants, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You want to silence the talk of ignorant and foolish people? Don't do ignorant and foolish things. Do good. Do good is what he says, right? Listen, you guys, there are some things we just don't have to say. There are some things we just don't have to post on social media. There are some conversations we just don't have to be involved in. We can do the right thing, and we can do it in the right way, right, with respect. Here's the second thing. The second application I would say is this, is that for those of us who follow Jesus, we need to resolve to replace complaining with prayer. We need to resolve that we're going to replace complaining, ranting, unnecessary arguments about politics, let's replace that with prayer. Let's replace it with prayer. You know, one of the things that the Apostle Paul tells us that we owe our governing authorities, he doesn't mention it in this passage, but he mentions it in another passage in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, as he says we owe the authorities our prayer. Notice what he says. He says, I urge you then, first of all, that first of all, of first importance, that petitions, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, kings, those in authority, that we might live a peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You guys see what, what Paul says here? He says, here's what we owe our leaders. We owe them our prayers. We owe them our prayers. You guys, what would it look like if we prayed as much as we complained? What would it look like if we replaced the same mental and conversational real estate that we give to complaining and to ranting and to being unnecessarily critical about these things, 
as we did, what would it look like if we replaced that with prayer? I'm just saying, I think that would change things. I think that would change a lot of things. And so, and so here, here's a recommendation, some practical recommendations I want to give. What if, what if this, what if for those of us who follow Jesus, whenever you were driving down the street and you saw a political yard sign, that became your cue to pray for that person, whoever's on the sign. So driving down the road, you see a Trump sign, that was your cue. I want to pray for Donald Trump right now. You drive down the road, you see a Hillary sign, it's my cue. I'm going to pray for Hillary Clinton and her, and her whole team, her staff right now. Driving down the road, you see a judge whatever. I want to pray for that judge right now. That's going to be my sign. Some of you are like, man, if I did that, I'd be praying all the time. Right. That's kind of the point, right? That'd be a good thing. And some of you are like, well, what would I pray? I don't even know what I would pray. Some of you are like, I know what I'd pray. I'd be like, I pray that they win, that they lose, and that they die. That's what I pray. You know? And let me just say, don't pray that, all right? Probably not a good idea. But you want, you want a quick idea of what to pray for? Here, I'll give you one. Look at verse 4. It says that God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. How about that? What if when you drove past a Trump sign, you said, God, I pray that Donald Trump would come to a saving knowledge of you and that he would come to know you. I pray that Donald Trump would be saved, that he would come to the knowledge of the truth. Pray for that, God. You want that for him. So I'm gonna pray that for him. What if, what if when you passed by a sign you saw for Hillary Clinton, God, I pray for Hillary Clinton. I pray that she would be saved and that she would come to the knowledge of truth. So I pray for her. Now, what if you did that? How awesome would that be? And listen, here's, here's, here's what we know. If we did that, if you and I prayed that way, do you know what would happen? Verse 3 tells us, it says this is good, and it would please God, our Savior. And that would please God. Anyone in favor of pleasing God? Yeah, I am. I would love to please God. Here's a, a very tangible way that you can do it. Pray. Pray for the leaders that God has given us. You guys, I'm convinced that the most valuable contribution that a follower of Jesus can add to this election season is not our vote. Now, we should vote. Yes, absolutely. We'll talk about that in a minute. Voting is very important, and I think you ought to do it. But it's not our most valuable contribution to this election season. Our most valuable contribution is our prayer. Because let's just be honest. Complaining changes nothing. Changes nothing. Arguments almost has... Argue, unnecessary arguments usually have an inverse effect. Voting can actually change things. Prayer can change history. And so what, what if we decided to resolve in our hearts that we'd be people of prayer during this season. Let's replace complaining with prayer. Okay, so how does, how does a follower of Jesus, a person of faith, interact with politics? How, what does a person, a follower of Jesus, how do they interact with uh, governing authorities? Well, we said providentially, submissively, respectfully, and here's the last one. The final one is this. You ready? Eschatologically. Eschatologically. Some of you are like, what is that? Are you talking English right now? I don't know what that is. So let me just explain, because it takes a little bit to explain. So eschatology, if you're not familiar with that word, what eschatological or eschatology is, it's actually just a really fancy pants word. And all it means is that concerning the end. That's all it means. So basically, it's thinking with the end in mind. Eschatology in the Bible is what refers to end times events. Okay? It's eschatology or eschatological thinking. Now, this one, this one is really, really, really important, and here's why. Because so far up to this point, what Romans has told us, the Apostle Paul said that a person of faith needs to interact with politics and governing authorities providentially, respectfully, submissively. And let's just, let's just be straight. All of those sound really good. They sound really nice. But those all sound impossible. Because let's face it, right? For some of us, when we hear that, when I say, hey, you need to submit to the governing authorities that God has provided for you, and hey, you need to be respectful and show honor, for some of you, that grates against you because you're like, well, wait a minute, though. Well, wait a minute, they don't deserve that, though. Wait a minute, though. Are you just, are you just saying that we just need to, to set ourselves up to be taken advantage of? Is that what you're saying? 
that we just need to be mindless, spineless people who just smile all the time and act like everything is fine and we can never stand up for ourselves and we can never fight for, is that what you're telling me right now? Because listen, if that's what you're saying, then all of this just sounds like wishful thinking. And some of you might be thinking that. You're like, dude, this, this sounds like passive escapism. This sounds like hopeless optimism. This sounds like rainbow puking unicorn denial, okay? That's what this sounds like to me. And, and, and let's just be honest. If we stopped there, that would be true. But I believe that this fourth way that a person of faith is to interact with politics is what makes the first three possible, eschatologically, eschatologically. Now, what am I talking about? Well, look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 11. He says, and do this. Do what, Paul? Interact with the government as providential, submissively, and respectfully. Do this, he says, look at this, understanding. He says, because, do this because you know something. He says, there's something that you know. There's something that you understand that allows you to do this. What is it, Paul? That the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Verse 12, he says, the night is nearly over and the day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. So you see what the Apostle Paul says. He says, listen, a person of faith can interact with, with, with politics and governing authorities providentially, submissively, and respectfully because there's something we know, because there's something we understand. And he talks about in this passage, he says, listen, the night is almost over and the day is almost here. Some of you are like, what is that talking about? The night is over and the day is here. What, what in the world is that even referring to? Well, if you're not real familiar with the New Testament, in the New Testament, actually all throughout the Bible, this metaphor of night and day is used to speak about eschatological things. In fact, there's a term that the Apostle Paul uses here. He says, the day is almost here. It's actually a fascinating word, the day. The day, that term, is used all throughout the New Testament. The Bible's always talking about the day, the day, the day. The day is coming. The day is coming. Now, when the Bible talks about the day, it's not talking about some general day. It's talking about a very specific day. Uh, some passages call it the day of the Lord. Some passages call it the day of judgment. Some passages call it the day of compensation, when those who follow Jesus will be, will be compensated for the good things they've done on, in this life. The Bible talks about it as the day in which Christ will be established on his throne and the kingdom will come in its fullness. It's the day. Let me just give you a couple passages to talk about the day, to show you what I'm talking about. Look at, um, look at Hebrews here, Hebrews uh, chapter 10. He says, let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see, look, the day, the day is approaching. Encourage each other with what? With the fact that the day is coming. The day is coming. And look at this next one, First, uh, Second Thessalonians 1. The writer of Thessalonians, Paul, says, on the day, the day, on the day he comes, he will be glorified in his holy people and he will marveled at among all of those who believe. These are just a couple passages. I could give you 25 passages to talk about the day, the day, the day is coming, the day is coming. So the Apostle Paul says, how is it that a follower of Jesus finds the power to live in such a way that they view the governing authorities as providentially, submissively, and respectfully. Where do we find the power to do that? He says, well, it's all because we're living in light of the day. The day is coming. I was uh, studying this this past week, and this might sound really goofy, but the first thought that came to my mind was cheat day. And let me explain what I mean. So um, there was a time in my life, there was a time, uh, when I had the ability to eat whatever I wanted in any quantity that I wanted, and it had absolutely no effect on my waistline. It's a beautiful time of life. 
It was, all, it was excellent. I, could, I gave no mind to nutrition. Ate whatever I wanted to. Whatever tasted good, I ate. Whatever didn't taste good, I didn't eat, which meant I ate nothing healthy. And it affected me not at all. It was a beautiful time. I call that time of my life my early 20s. It was awesome. I miss it. If you're in that season of life right now where you can eat what you want and it has no effects on you, enjoy it. Right? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. You will surely diet. It's going to happen. Right? <laughs> And, uh, and so I, I, I had that season of my life, but then time, the great destroyer of all things, set in. And when I turned about 26, 25, 26, my body made a decision. And the decision it made was that every carbohydrate that I was going to eat from that point forward was going to stay with me. And, and so all of a sudden, I was like, my goodness, I'm going to have to like, start thinking about nutrition and diet. And so I had to start thinking about those things. Now, my relationship with dieting over the past 10 years has not been a good one. All right? It's vacillated quite a bit, like many of you have probably struggled with before too, and m- myself included. So I would, get, I, would, I would learn about some big diet craze, and I'd get on it, and I'd be all motivated, and I'd be all amped up, and I'd be excited about it, and I would tell everyone about it, I'm doing this new diet, it's awesome, and I'd get all jacked up about it. And I would do it for about three months, and I would have you know, enthusiasm, but then inevitably what would happen is my willpower would wane, and my excitement would wane, and then one day I'd find myself in a position where I saw a Twinkie, and I'd be like, man, i got to eat that Twinkie. And so I would eat the Twinkie, and that would turn into me eating a box of Twinkies, and that would turn into me getting rid of the diet altogether. And then I'd fall off the wagon, and then I would wait until the new year, and then I'd try again, right? And this was the way it went for a long time. I'd be on and off. I'd be up and down. It was a really frustrating that type of relationship. And all that was the case until one day I discovered something. Someone taught me about something I'd never heard of before, but many of you guys have, and that is the cheat day, the cheat day. And ever since I started incorporating the cheat day, i just tell you, my relationship with dieting has been far much better. It's been a lot better since that's happened. So you guys know how cheat day works, right? Here's how cheat day works. Basically, by and large, you eat healthy as much as you possibly can, but then periodically you assign yourself a day. There is a day. And on that day, you eat whatever it is that you want to eat. You eat it all, a 24-hour period of time. Then you go back to the diet, and then you kind of get back into it. Here's the craziest thing. When I started doing the cheat day, I started to realize that I had discovered a power that was not available to me previously in dieting. So I'd be at a birthday party, right? And we'd be there, and I'd be doing really strong on my diet, and then all of a sudden they bust out the cake and the candy and the cookies, all the good things, the ice cream, all the things that come from from God. And and they would bring the stuff out, and I would see it, and I'd feel my willpower draining like kryptonite to Superman, right? And I would look at it, and I'd be like, oh, I want that so bad. But then I remember, wait a minute, I have a day. I have a day. And so they'd say, would you like a piece of cake? And I'd say, no, thank you. I'm, I'm fine right now. Would you like a piece to go? Yes, I would. Because <laughs> there's a day. And on that day, I will have my cake and I will eat it too. Both of those things are going to happen. I could walk through the, with the day, I could walk through the grocery store and I would see Oreos, which are like my, my number one weakness. I love Oreos. And I would see Oreos and I'd be like, oh, I want an Oreo so bad. But all of a sudden, I would feel this confidence well up inside of me because I would say to the Oreos, no, not today. Today's not your day, but there is a day. There is a day I will have you, and I will eat you one row at a time. That's going to happen. With the day, I could look bacon in the face, and I could say, get behind me, bacon. (laughs) Today is not your day. I will eat a pound of you on the day. The day. I had a day. And listen, if if you can get your mind around that silly idea, it's kind of a goofy illustration, but if you can get your mind around that, I think you're starting to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here. What is it that empowers us 
to submit to authorities that sometimes rub against us, that sometimes uh, represent ethics that don't match that which we believe, that are sometimes corrupt? What is it that empowers us to show respect and honor to people that even sometimes don't deserve our respect and honor? What is it that allows us to do that? And the Apostle Paul says, the day. You can, you, can, you can endure anything for a season because there's a day. And on that day, real justice, you'll be rewarded for, 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 for the deeds that you do in this life. On that day, Christ will be established on his throne and all the governmental authorities of this life will be a thing of the past. It'll be a thing of history. There is a day. Know the time. Live in light of that day is what he says. Live as children of the light. Don't live in a way where you're just constantly reacting to the circumstances that are around you. Instead, respond to a greater eternal reality. That is the day. The day, the day is coming. And so how do we interact with politics? Well, we, we do it providentially. We do it respectfully. We do it submissively. But you can't do those things if you don't do it eschatologically. It's all in light of a greater reality that God has established. Okay, so practically speaking, what are some conclusions we can draw from that then? Well, let me just draw three conclusions, and then we'll be finished with this whole series. And so uh, three quick conclusions. In fact, I'll ask the band to come up. They can settle in as we close this down. Here's, Here's three conclusions I think we can draw. Number one is this. You guys, politics are secondary. I think the Bible's pretty clear on this. Politics are secondary. It doesn't mean they're not important. Just because they're secondary doesn't mean they're not important. It just means they're not that important. It's, it's, it's a secondary thing. Let, let me put it this way. There's a fantastic book I read um, in preparation for this series. It's, called James, it's by James Davidson Hunter. It's a book called To Change the World. Very fascinating read. I'd encourage you to read it if you, if you, uh, if you, if you want to uh, dive a little deeper into this whole conversation. To Change the World. Again, it's by James Davidson Hunter. And in that book, he argues quite convincingly, I believe, and, and many other authors as well, he uh, argues quite convincingly that politics is downstream from culture. And so in other words, here's what he means. What what he argues is that if you want to change the world, if you want to change a culture, that the way you do that is not from the top down. It doesn't happen from the top down. In other words, politics doesn't change culture. Politics represents culture. Politics does nothing more than represent a constituency. It doesn't mean it's unimportant. But what it means is this, if you want to change a culture, the way you do that is from, is from the bottom up. You do it from the inside out, not from the outside in. Now, you want to change a culture, you have to change the people. And there is no amount of legislation and there is no amount of law enforcement that can alter the human heart. It's not pop- You can't legislate heart change. The only way that you can really truly tra- transform a heart for the good and for the love of other people is the power of the gospel working itself out in love. That's the only way that happens. And so because of that, politics are important, yes, but they're secondary. They're secondary. You want to change the world? You, you want to change the, the culture? Well, it's not going to happen from the top down. That, and I don't, like, again, I don't think that means that what we legislate and, and law enforcement is a bad thing. It's just not the most important thing. So practically speaking, what about this? What if for those of us who follow Jesus, we gave more bandwidth and attention not to trying to make sure that prayer that we fight for the right to pray in schools, which I think that's a good thing, by the way. I think that's a a right worth fighting for. But what if we gave more of our bandwidth and attention to keeping prayer in our own families, in our own marriages, in our own living rooms? Because if we're fighting to to try to preserve this right over here, but we're not practicing practicing this in our own private sector, in our own homes, in our own marriages, true change is never gonna happen. 
Because it happens from the inside out, right? What if instead of fighting to keep the religious terminology in our legal documents, in God we trust, etc., what if instead of fighting hard to do those things, which I, I think we should fight, that's a good thing, right? But what if instead, what if we gave more bandwidth and more attention to loving and discipling our kids, to loving our neighbors, to caring for the orphan, the widow, and the poor in our society? What if we gave attention to those things? Because true transformation can't be legislated. You can't legislate that. It happens from the ground level. And, and, and as we make disciples, and as, as the gospel works itself out in love, it transforms one heart at a time. The Bible says that we are to be salt and light in this world that we live in. I think that's what it means. That this comes, Jesus' movement, Jesus' revolution wasn't a top-down approach. Jesus didn't come to become, uh, to sit on a, a throne as an earthly king. Do you remember they tried to make him king? You remember what he said? He ran away. He said, I don't want to be that kind of king. The kind of king that Jesus is is one that went to the cross, revolutionized the hearts of man. And that's the way that real tra- change and real transformation takes place. And Christ's kingdom is enduring to this day. All other kingdoms have vanished. So politics are secondary. Here, here's the second thing I would say. Because politics are secondary, God's kingdom is primary. God's kingdom is primary, right? There is a more primary, there is a more preeminent reality than the governmental structure that we, that the United States of America, than our country, than our government, there's a more primary, more preeminent reality. That is the kingdom of God. And so what that means practically is, for those of us who follow Jesus, that means that a, a democratic republic, right, is an opportunity, is a creative opportunity for us to display our kingdom values and our kingdom ethics. So practically speaking, here's what I mean. For those of us who are of voting age and are registered to vote, when we walk into the poll and we walk in to vote in that voting booth, right, when we go to do that, we should go first and foremost not as citizens of the United States of America. We should, we should be citizens, but we are dual citizens. And so we should go primarily as capital C, citizens of the kingdom of God and lowercase c, citizens of the United States of America. What that means is that we ought to pray, we ought to vote, not according to our preferences, not according first and foremost to what benefits us the most, but we should vote in such a way that reflects the ethics and the values of the kingdom in which we're from. Because the kingdom is primary, and being in a democracy allows us to have creative opportunities to enforce those things. Now, now, we should practice our votes. Yes, we live in an awesome country. We have the freedom to vote. We have the freedom of speech. We should utilize those freedoms to affect change. Absolutely. We should do it with respect and honor and gentleness. Do the right things in the right ways. All right, here's the last thing I'll, I'll mention. The day, the day, is greater than election day. All right, so the day is, is, is certain, is permanent, is fixed. And there's nothing that can happen on this day that is going to change that day. And there's nothing that can happen on election day that's going to change that day. So all that to say, it's a great thing to be prepared for election day. It's an awesome thing. Do your research. Get to know the topics. Get to know the issues. Absolutely. Understand it. Pray through it. Vote with a clear conscience. Do all those things. But to be prepared for election day and to not be prepared for the day, oh man, that'd be a, that would be a tragedy. And so if you're a person, and I talk about the day, and there's a day when Christ's kingdom is going to be established. There is a day when we will give an answer to Christ for what we've done in this life. There is a day of reckoning. There's a day in which Christ himself will come back. Now, when I say that, if you're not prepared for that day, if that thought of standing before God and giving account for your life terrifies you, I would say you probably better prepare for that day, that day. 
And the Bible says that the only way that you and I can stand before God with a clear conscience is because of, the, is because of our faith in Jesus Christ. That is when we put our hope and our faith in Christ, it's only then that we can be prepared for that day. And so if you've never done that before, if you're not prepared for the day, I would encourage you, man, get ready for that day. And if you never embraced Jesus, I would encourage you to do that. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus said, whoever looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and he will be raised up on the day. And so you put your hope in Christ, you'll be prepared for the day. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that this morning. There's no magic way to do that. There's not a magic prayer. There's, you don't have to sacrifice a small animal. There's not a formula to it. Just between your heart and God's heart, you just say, man, God, I, I want you to be the king of my life. I want, I want you to be the, the savior of my soul. And you can give that to him and be prepared for the day. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I want to say thank you for your words to us this morning. And um, we're, we're in the midst of a season as a country that uh, it's just a lot of uncertainty. And yet, Father, we, we have, in the midst of such uncertainty, we have incredible certainty. We know, we know that the day is coming. And we can be certain of it, Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to live in light of that day. God, I ask you that, um, that you would help us to be, to be people, for those of us who follow you, God, to be people who view our governing authorities as providential from you. God, I pray that you would help us to live in submission. Give us wisdom to know what submission looks like. In, in, in very difficult scenarios. God, I pray that you would help us to, to be respectful. Help us to do not just the right thing, but the right thing in the right way. God, I pray you would, you would forgive those of us who follow you for the times that we add to the viciousness. We add to the venomous cynicism that's so pervasive in our day, God. Would you forgive us for that? And Lord, would you re- help us replace that with an attitude of respect and honor and prayer? Lord, help us not to speak ill of anybody, uh, but instead to, to be in a position where we, where we can pray for, for those um, who are in um, authority over us, God. It, it's an obligation that you've given us, and I pray that you'd help us with that. And God, because of that, I also just want to take this time. I want to lift up to you, um, lift up to our nation. And I want to pray, God, that you would help us to, uh, to be able to pray regularly for whoever the next president of this country is. Whoever the next president is, Jesus, I pray you would give them wisdom. God, I pray that you would give them strength and confidence. Give them uh, the ability to know it's right. Give them the courage to do it. And more than all of that, I pray they would come to a saving knowledge of you. And put their hope and their trust in you, Father. Transform their heart. And give them grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.